Welcome to TCC Alive, a podcast of Tulare Community Church. It's great to be in Tulare. I bring you greetings also from uh, Western Theological Seminary and from our president, Tim Brown, who I, I know many of you know Tim well, and um, he's a little jealous that I get to be in Tulare this morning, and he is in cold and wet. I'm sorry about the wet part, because I know you're, you're envious of that, but cold and wet, Holland, Michigan. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, would your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and the glory of Jesus our single concern. Amen. I'm going to read a section of scripture from the Gospel of Matthew. This is chapter 25. It's a very well-known parable that Jesus tells. Uh, starting at verse 14, and we're going to go all the way through verse 30. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who'd received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who'd received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done. Good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The, master, the man with the two talents also said, Master, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who'd received the one talent came, Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the first house that my wife and I ever owned, we lived in Holland, Michigan, and we lived next door to a great, wonderful couple, Stan and Alice Niebuhr, 
salt-of-the-earth kind of people. They were, uh, Stan was a World War II vet and a retired woodworker from Herman Miller and a lifelong member of the Maplewood Reformed Church. And one day in the backyard, Stan knew that I'd been to seminary and knew that I'd been ordained. And he said to me, and he really had to kind of screw up his courage to say this to me. He said, uh, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but there's one story in the Bible that always bothered me. He said, it's that story about the guy that takes the, the talent and buries it in the ground. Stan said, I'm not so sure. I wouldn't have done the same thing if I were in his shoes. I don't understand why what he did was so bad. Well, poor Stan. It was all he could do to say that. He felt terrible saying, I don't, I don't know that I understand something in the Bible. It doesn't feel right to me. But I think God can handle our questions. And I understand where, 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 where Stan was coming from. This parable has a surprise ending. Those that heard it the first time, we've heard it many, many times, but those who heard it the first time, I'm sure were surprised by the ending of the parable. It's natural for us to root for the underdog. And in this story, the underdog gets the short end of the stick. As Matthew tells it, you know, a wealthy person is going on a trip. He figures his interests will best be served if he distributes some of his property to his servants to take care of. And this is one of the things that bothers Stan also. You know, in the United States, we live under the idea that all men are created equal. But in this parable, at least, some are more equal than others. One is given five, one is given two, one is given one. And of course, those, the, the one with five takes it, doubles it. The one with two takes it, doubles it. And then the underdog does nothing with it, buries it in the ground. He's the kind of guy that's all right when someone else tells him what to do, but when he has to make the decisions, it's difficult for him. It causes anxiety and stress for him. So the master returns, calls for an accounting. You know the story. The guy with five has five more. The words are so familiar to us, we use them at funerals now. Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. And then our guy gets called in. He's so out of touch, he's proud of himself. He's proud of the fact that he hasn't lost any of the money. He's proud to say, it's all here. All your money is here, every penny of it. Nothing's been lost. That's a victory for him. But then the master erupts in anger. You wicked and lazy servant, he says. And he orders the one talent taken from him and given to the one who had more. And then commands that the man be thrown out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What a story for Jesus to tell. What a story for the same person who said, the first shall be last and the last shall be first to tell. It's like, I'm a little bit of a baseball fan, it's like saying to the Chicago Cubs, if you don't do anything this year, we're going to take Starlin Castro, your, your outstanding young shortstop, and we'll just give him to the New York Yankees. The rich keep getting richer, and the poor keep getting poorer. So Stan struggled with this parable. And I, I struggled a little bit, too, until I read another take on it. 
a take on it that related to a life-changing event that I had experienced. Way back in 1985, this is ancient history, but 1985, 28 years ago, I was a student at Western Theological Seminary, and I was working uh, for Young Life at the time in Holland. And my wife now, my fiancé at that time, Gretchen, was going to come home from work that day. I was actually house-sitting for a high school friend whose parents were away. It was a month before we were married. Gretchen was going to come home and make us dinner. And this high school guy, Craig, and I, we were both in the, we were in the family room. We were both on couches. We were watching a Chicago Cubs game. Those were the days of Harry Carey. I don't know if that means anything out here in Tulare, but in the Midwest, Harry Carey was droning on. We were both mostly asleep. Well, Gretchen came in, and we were kind of giving her a hard time. She was going to make us dinner. We're kind of being jerks, like, hey, woman, make us our dinner, you know, that, that kind of stuff. And then she went off to the bathroom, and she called to me from the bathroom. She said, Jeff, come here. And to my credit, at that moment, I got up and I went to the bathroom uh, to see where, what was the matter, which was unusual. I mean, just a second before, we were just screwing around. But I got up. I don't know why. There was something in her voice that told me something was wrong. She was 24 years old. She was in perfect health. She was an aerobics instructor. And at 10 after 5 that Thursday afternoon, she became completely paralyzed on the left side of her body. As I walked into the bathroom and I saw her, the whole left side of her face was starting to sag and, and, and actually there was drool coming out. And I said, what's happening? And she said, I don't know. And I said, well, can you walk to me? I was only a, two feet away from her. And she said, yes. And I said, well, try to walk to me. And she tried to take a step and collapsed. And so I grabbed her and I pulled her out into the front room of the house and I called to Craig, sat her down on a couch. Craig, this high school kid, got up, looked at Gretchen, and Gretchen at this time was starting to slump over on her left side, and on her right side, she started to go into seizures. So the left side was dead, and the right side, her arm and leg started going all over the place. And Craig, with all the warmth and sensitivity that a 16-year-old boy can sometimes have, looked at her and said, what's wrong with her? (laughs) And I screamed, I don't know. We have to take her to the hospital right now. And so Craig and I both tried to lift her at the same time, which was also like something out of Laurel and Hardy because we went in two different directions. And then bless his heart, I was starting to lose it. Craig said to me, you open the door, I'll pick her up. And so I opened the door, Craig picked her up, we put her in the car. We were only a couple blocks away from Holland Hospital. I drove 70 miles an hour down a residential street (laughs) in Holland, Michigan, getting her to the hospital, and then drove up the uh, exit of the emergency area. Drove up so fast that there was a nurse that was coming off duty. And she saw the way that I drove in and knew something was wrong. And so she stood there and waited for us to to get up there and um, saw Gretchen and went and grabbed a wheelchair. And we put Gretchen in the wheelchair and wheeled. I, I felt this great sense of relief. We got into the hospital, wheeled Gretchen into the hospital, slumped over on one side, arm and leg going on the other, and we got there, the emergency room desk, 
and there was no one there. <laughs> and this nurse said, I'll go find the person who's supposed to be here. And I said, thank you. And so she went off, found that person, brought her back. Now, if any of you are nurses in this uh, congregation, please don't say what this woman said to me at this moment. The nurse that came, came in, looked at Gretchen and said, is this normal behavior for her? And I screamed. I just lost it. I screamed. I said, no, that's why we're here. And so she said, all right, and wheeled Gretchen away. And then I was on my own. Wheeled her away, you know, took her into the emergency rooms, called the doctors, and I was left to sit there and wonder what in the world was happening. Well, what was happening was that at the age of 24, she was having a stroke. A stroke that, uh, to this day, the doctors don't have a complete understanding of why that happened. Probably related to migraine headaches she had had. Probably related to the fact that she'd started taking birth control because we were getting married in a month. She spent the next week in intensive care, a week after that in a regular room, and then two months after that in a rehabilitation center. We got married while she was in the hospital. We got married on a Friday night. They gave her a weekend pass uh, from the rehab center. We got married on Friday night. We spent Saturday in the big fancy hotel in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and then Sunday morning, I took her back to the hospital. It's an unusual way to start your life together. And it would be a year before she could really walk and go back to work. It would be five years before she could drive again. And yet Gretchen has given birth naturally to high-risk pregnancies, but natural birth to two children. Every day of our life's been affected by that day. And yet I can't imagine our life any other way than what's happened. And she is, she's here, right there and is a wonderful, courageous person. Well, as I sat in the emergency room, I called a couple people, and they called other people. And it's one of the great things. I don't know how, Christ, how, how non-Christian people deal with things like this when it happens, but the Christian community came around. Friends came around and sat with me. The presence of those friends was a grace to me. But there was one particular exchange that happened that night that I'll never forget. I was sitting there, and I was thinking about our future, and I was actually wondering if Gretchen was going to live or die at that point. And then if she did live, I was wondering what sort of person was she going to be? How how was this going to affect her? And I, I just felt this incredible weight come over me, and I started to cry. And I'll never forget that a man that was sitting next to me, an older friend, kind of reached his arm out and grabbed, took me around the shoulder. I thought he was going to say something kind and comforting to me. And he said, get a hold of yourself. He said, she needs you to be strong. You need to be strong right now. And you know, I took his advice. I got a hold of myself. I stopped feeling what was happening. And I kind of gave it the old stiff upper lip. Stop crying. 
Well, the reality is I totally stopped feeling. I just became numb. The overwhelming feeling I had the rest of that night and for months and months and months afterwards was numbness. The other feeling I would have that would come out in ways that I wasn't proud of was anger. Anger and numbness. Those were the two feelings that I had. And it wasn't until about seven years after that I was reading an obscure article by a Christian minister named Frederick Buechner. And the name of the article was uh, The Stewardship of Pain. He, that article put the events of that night into a new focus for me. And that article looked at this parable that I read, this parable from Matthew 25, and put a new light on it, a new spin on it, in a way that I'd never thought of before. When we think of stewardship, you know, we usually think of money. We think of time, talent, treasure, But that's not all we're stewards of. We're stewards of everything that happens to us. The good things, we're stewards of the bad things as well. And Buechner raises the question, what about being a steward of your pain? Let me just share a little bit from Frederick Buechner. He says, what this parable is essentially about is what we do with these mixed lives that we're given these hands that were so unevenly dealt? How do we get the most out of what we're so variously and hair-raisingly given? It's the pain we're given that interests me the most here, and I suspect must have interested Jesus too because God knows he was dealt plenty of it himself during his 30-some years on this planet. Two of the servants do one thing, but the third servant takes what he has given for our purposes Let us focus particularly on the pain he has given, and he buries it. He takes it and hides it in a hole in the ground, and thereby, I would suggest, becomes the blood brother and soulmate of virtually every one of us at one time or another. We bury for years the tragic memory, the secret fear, the unspoken loneliness, the unspeakable desire I was afraid, the third third servant says, and he had good reason to be. We all of us have good reason to be afraid. Life can be hard as well as marvelous. Hard and terrible things happen to us in this world, which calls us to be strong and brave and wise and to be heroes when it's all we can do just to keep our heads above water. So we dig the hole in the ground, in ourselves, in our busyness, or wherever we dig it, and we hide the terrible things in it, which is another way of saying we hide ourselves from the terrible things. And I think what this parable means is that it's the buried pain in particular, and all the other things we bury when we start burying our pain, including joy, which tends to get buried too when we start burying things. That the buried life itself is darkness and wailing, and gnashing of teeth. And the one who casts us into it is no other than ourselves. Well, when I read those words, they hit me like a truck. (laughs) I thought he'd looked into my soul and found out my secret. And when my friend suggested, get a hold of yourself in the emergency room, I felt that 
and I, I think he meant it in a good way, but I took it in a way of just burying my pain, not feeling what was happening. I wouldn't trust anyone with the truth of how much it hurt. And all I felt, like I said, was numb. It was as if I'd cast myself into the outer darkness. The parable presents two options for what we do with the things that happen in our life. One option is to bury it. The other is to be a steward of it. Those that were good stewards learned to trade. And what is trading other than exchanging what we have for what we need? There isn't a guarantee that our pain will go away or that there's going to be a happy ending. But at least we stand a chance of finding we aren't alone in our pain. That pain is a universal human experience. And the story of one of us is, in a sense, the story of all of us. Beekner says we don't have to wear our pain on our sleeves or talk about it with each other all the time. But it's just that we should talk to each other out of it. To be a steward of your pain means moving out of shallowness with each other into real depth in our relationships. You know, I don't know you. This isn't my church. I was here once with Tim Brown last fall. It's the second time I've ever been here. But in another sense, I think I know everything about you because life happens here. Good and marvelous things as well as terrible and difficult, hard things. It happens to all of us. You know, as you might guess, in the 28 years since this happened, this isn't the first time I've ever shared this story with people. I've shared it at some conferences. I've shared it in sermons before. And a remarkable thing tends to happen when I share it with people. People feel compelled to come tell their stories of heartache and heartbreak to me. I've stood and listened to stories of depressed and diseased spouses, of sick and dying children, of brain tumors and leukemia and troubled marriages. And I was at a conference once and a guy followed me into the men's room to tell me about the death of his child. It was a surreal experience. And I've concluded from that that pain is universal and that giving people permission to acknowledge their pain is liberating. So I ask you, do you see life with its pain and its joy as God's great gift put into your trust for yourself and for the sake of others? Do you see the hurt, the trauma, the setbacks, the tragic memories, the secret fears, the unspoken loneliness? What have you done with those things? Have you buried them? Or are you somehow a steward of these things? To bury your life is to let it wither in the ground and diminish. It's to be deeply alone. It's to be less alive than when you started. To be a steward of your pain is to take the risk of openness, the risk of love, and of course with it the risk of rejection. But it's to discover you don't need to be alone in your pain. What might God be saying to you through the difficult things that happen? C.S. Lewis called pain God's megaphone, God's way of speaking, of getting our attention. Others have compared it to a hammer and a chisel used by a sculptor. The story of Jesus has great pain in it, but there is redemption through the pain. 
Just for a moment, let's compare Jesus' story to that of another religion that also addresses pain. Life is suffering is the first of the, of the four noble truths of Buddhism. I don't know that I as a Christian totally agree with that. I, I, I think suffering is a part of life, but I don't think suffering is all of life. And the goal of Buddhism is to reach nirvana through meditation and rebirth to get to a place where suffering cannot touch you. The Buddha said, he who loves 50 has 50 woes. He who loves 10 has 10 woes. And he who loves none has no woe. Imagine the Buddha as you can see him in your mind's eye as he sits in the lotus position with his lips parted in a smile. The smile of one who's passed beyond every power in heaven and on earth to touch him. And his eyes are closed. Now compare that to Jesus on the cross. His eyes are wide open. He sees everything that's happening. What did he do with the suffering that the Buddha closed his eyes to? Surely he bore our grief. He was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. By his wounds we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sin of us all. Jesus is the greatest example of being a steward of pain. And pain isn't the end of the story. It wasn't the end of Gretchen and my story. It really was the beginning of the story for us. And pain isn't the end of the story with Jesus either. Death doesn't end the story for Jesus. Resurrection, new life, is what the story of Jesus is about. Life with Jesus is life that's lived fully, resurrected life. Well, my hope for you is that you won't bury your pain, but that you would, as Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me for the sake of Christ and for the sake of each other so that one day you too will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we don't understand. We don't understand but we trust. We trust that the things that happen can be used for your glory. We trust that the difficult things that happen are your way of shaping us. We know it's so hard in the midst of it, but we know the promise of the resurrection is a true promise for us. Help us know that and live into it. In the name of the risen Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to know more about the ministries and mission of Tulare Community Church, visit us at tccalive.org.